Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege to be here. What a privilege to behold you in Mark chapter 14. You have divinely appointed for us to be here this morning to receive profit from this text. And Lord, this, this, this verse comes to my mind, uh, Psalm chapter 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Lord, we want to gaze upon Your beauty this morning. And I ask that You would help me to serve this church in light of gazing upon your beauty, so that we are affected by that, permanently affected by that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In, in every generation, uh, there are certain events that will forever define and shape that period of history. We walk through those events, and because we walk through them, they're vivid to us, and they're real to us. All of you have walked through major events in history. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, 1969. Japanese invade Pearl Harbor, 1941. Secretariat wins Triple Crown, 1973. The Berlin Wall comes down in 1989. President Kennedy is assassinated in 1963 in Dealey Plaza. O.J. Simpson is found guilty of murder in 1995. Terrorists destroy the Twin Towers in New York in 2001. The Red Sox win the series and reverse the curse in 2004. Kent State Massacre, 1970. A write-in candidate wins the U.S. Senate seat in 1954. A tsunami devastates Sri Lanka and southern India in 2005. Mount St. Helens erupts in Washington in 1980. U.S. women earn a right to vote in 1920. Rosa Parks takes her seat on the bus in 1955. Allied troops storm beaches at Normandy in 1944. Influenza kills millions worldwide in 1918. Lance Armstrong wins the seventh Tour de France in 2005. Nixon resigns as U.S. President in 1974. Princess Diana killed in a strange Paris car crash. 1997. Down goes Fraser. Down goes Fraser. 1974. Stock market crashes triggers the Great Depression. 1929. And the earth begins to rumble and shake. January 12, 2010, in Haiti, leaving 300,000 either dead, injured, and millions of lives changed forever. Well, when we think about significant events in history, moments like these come to our minds. But this morning, we're going to come face-to-face with three major events in history. In fact, so major that all of them will be remembered throughout the history of humanity. One is the institution of the Lord's Supper at the end of the passage, and that's specifically designed for us to remember. The second is Judas' betrayal of Jesus in the middle. Who can forget that? And the first 
is something we'll always remember forever because Jesus promised that we should remember it forever. And that's the woman anointing Jesus with oil. So all three events are historic. All are vital for us to understand. And what I want to do this morning is this. Through this passage, I hope that we'll learn to do three things. Number one, I hope that we'll learn to emulate Mary's devotion. Secondly, avoid Judas' betrayal. And thirdly, receive Jesus' sacrifice. That's where we're going. Emulate Mary's devotion. Avoid Judas' betrayal and receive Jesus' sacrifice. First, emulate Mary's devotion. No one has ever received a promise like verse 9. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus makes this amazing comment. He says, He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in a whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Why? Why her? What, what is special about what she did? What specifically did she do that prompted Jesus to go out of his way to say, whatever she has done, this what she has done will be remembered wherever the gospel is preached. See, I want to ask the question this morning, why her? If we're going to emulate her devotion, the question I want to ask is, why her? Because if we ask the question, why her? Then we have the, the ability then to... To, to become like her, if we understand why her. So that's, if, if we are affected by her, then we will become like her. The passage begins with this disturbing thought. Look at verses 1 and 2. The chief priest and the scribes are eager to arrest Jesus. In fact, it says there that the purpose for their wanting to arrest Jesus is really ultimately so they can kill him. That's the purpose. And at the conclusion of this account, the religious leaders will receive an unexpected support from uh, an unlikely person, one of Jesus' own disciples in Judas Iscariot. But between verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11, we have this story kind of embedded in Mark's account. See, Mark is a master storyteller. He is constantly weaving themes in and out all throughout his gospel. So what he does is he starts with this plot to kill Jesus, and then he talks about this woman who's anointing Jesus, and then he goes back to the plot to kill Jesus. So we pick it up then with this story that's in between the two. We pick it up with with Mary being anointed. And this morning, what's happening is we are, in effect, being invited to this party. We are being invited to see this party and to take a front row seat in the theater house of God's Word this morning. See, you have to understand that this party is a most unique gathering. It is made up of all those who love the Savior and have a genuine affection for Him. And Jesus is the honored guest, and the house is filled with His closest friends and followers. Now, this spirit, the spirit that is at this party, is set in stark contrast to the spirit of verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. It's it's a massive difference here. I mean, you can feel it. You feel the support in this house, in this party. The host of this party is Simon. Simon the leper. Simon, apparently, he was healed of this leprosy since leprosy would have barred him from any social gathering. He would not have been allowed to participate. But he had been healed. And it just made me wonder this week as I was studying, could this have been, could this have been one of those ten lepers that was healed by Jesus earlier in his ministry? Could this be what Simon? Could he be one of those ten who finally approaches Jesus and he says, 
Lord, it would be out of my profound thankfulness and gratefulness to you, I would love to host a party for you so that you can come and, and have this great dinner. And I want to host this dinner in, in thankfulness to you. Who knows? We don't know. But, but anyway, others were there. John tells us, if you read the account in John, that other guests were there. Lazarus was present. Martha was busy serving. But most important, the Savior himself was there. He was the reason for the party. Uh, imagine the conversations taking place in this house. Imagine, isn't this great? You just imagine, Jesus is sitting there. Are they crowding around Jesus? Or are they just, are they, are they like what we do in parties? We just, we're in little groups and we're talking and then we move around, talk to somebody else. What, what was it like? Here's Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus had a story to tell. <laughs> I, I would want to walk over to Lazarus and say, man, I got, I got to talk to you, Lazarus. <laughs> I, I want to know. Tell me, man. I mean, you, you died, and, and you went to heaven for like four days, and, and then you had to come back. <laughs> what was that like? I mean, and, and then what happened, Lazarus, when you were first given the word that you have to come back to earth? After you had already been to heaven. <laughs> Think about that. Think about Lazarus' story. Think about how amazing this was. This man died. I mean, he's, this, here's a guy who has done death. He has experienced death. And he is at the party. He has been raised to life again. And he's going to have to die again. <laughs> I'd love to talk to Lazarus. Love to hear. Love to, he went to heaven for like four days. Like, can, you, can you imagine the conversation? Can you believe that, that all this was going on and Jesus is the honored guest here? It must have been an amazing party. Imagine how Lazarus would have felt about Jesus. So here's all the guests. They're all present. The house is filled with supporters and friends of Jesus. And here's the thing. No scribes. No Pharisees. No religious teachers that we know of at this house. So... One would think then that since this festive gathering is made up of all those who are grateful to the Savior, that this night would be a tension-free zone. This would be a tension-free evening. No tension, no, just a calm, nice, relaxing evening. But suddenly, things change. What happens is a woman walks in, and John, in his gospel, informs us that this is Mary. Mary walks into the house. This is the sister of Lazarus. And Martha, and she stands over the Savior, and while everyone's enjoying their time, she changes the entire mood of the party. She's like that person who, when you're standing around at a party and you're enjoying your evening, just makes a passing comment, doesn't intend anything by it, maybe even ask a question, and you're convicted immediately. You ever talk to somebody like that? They just say something, just in passing. And the comment just pierces so deep, it's convicting. And Mary would have walked in and she would have done this act of pouring oil on Jesus and immediately they must have felt conviction. At least they should have. But what does the text say? The text says actually that they become angry. Look around the room, see the disciples aren't getting it. She is showing devotion to Jesus, but they're not getting it. Oh, they know full well what's going on. And that's precisely the problem. They don't like it. 
They don't like it. See, Mary is standing over Jesus with this alabaster jar of expensive aromatic oil, and she's about to anoint Jesus. Now, you have to understand, this is not just any oil. This is pure nard. This would have been a, a plant extract from India, of a plant in India. And, of course, in that time, how hard it would be to get an extract from a plant in India and create an oil, very expensive. In fact, the oil is worth at least 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. That's a year's wages. Imagine dropping $40,000 at a party just because you love Jesus, just because you love someone. I mean, this is a heavy sacrifice. Incidentally, do you realize, you know, this is also worth 60 pieces of silver, which is twice as much as Judas betrayed Jesus for. Anyway, Mary would not have earned this kind of money. There's no way. A woman in this society would not have earned this kind of money. So probably what this is, this is a family heirloom that has come down. It's a treasured possession. I mean, at this point, you can see Mary walking into the room. She's got the jar and you can almost see Lazarus and, and Martha standing up. No, no, Mary, not that jar. Not that jar. This is a family heirloom. This is a treasured possession. Anything but that one, Mary. But before they could get the words out, they couldn't even get it out. Mary is, is breaking the jar. And you have to understand that the breaking of the jar is symbolizing that that jar cannot be used anymore. She's breaking it and she's pouring it over Jesus, which is symbolizing the totality of her gift to Jesus. She has destroyed the jar to anoint Jesus. It's too late now. Whatever Lazarus may have thought about this or Martha, it's too late. The oil is coming out. The aroma is filling the room. And the guys sitting around the table are shocked at this demonstration. You can hear the commotion. She's, she's wasting it. She, she's wasting the nard. Why? I mean, we're with Jesus all the time. What's the occasion? Why is she just randomly pouring this oil out on Jesus? Like we're with Him every day. It's, a, it's 300 denarii worth of nard. Why is she wasting it? Stop. Stop her. Somebody stop her. And they're angry. And so they argue. And you know what they say? They say, you should have spent the money on the poor. That's what they do. They, 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 pit, they, they use something scriptural, something biblical to say, see, you shouldn't be anointing Jesus. You could have spent this on the poor. <laughs> well, whether, whether they're really concerned about the poor or not, we don't really finally know. But one thing is clear. They regard her devotion to Jesus as wasteful. Which not only demeans Mary and her gift, it demeans Jesus. Because, in effect, what they're saying is that Jesus is unworthy of such extravagance. So these men rebuke her, and they scold Mary. And then, and then, another voice pierces the room. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She, she's done a beautiful thing to me. And following this rebuke, we hear this profound promise in verse 9. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Why? Why? Why does this promise for her? Why does Jesus say this? What is it about her act that evokes this affirmation on Jesus? 
on Jesus' behalf. You, you see, it must be told because Mary, Mary is perceiving something that the other men are not perceiving. See, she is seeing something that everyone else is missing. She is beginning to understand the mystery of the gospel. That somehow tied to Jesus is his death. Tied to the anointing is this death. Mary is seeing a connection. Look at verses 7 and 8 for proof of this. It says, For you always have the poor with you, Jesus says, and whenever you want you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my, listen, body beforehand for what? Burial. She believes that Jesus is going to die. Wasn't it one of the disciples who said, No, Master, we don't believe that that's going to happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. Mary is beginning to perceive the death of Jesus Christ. She's beginning to see that, perceive that in some way, somehow, this death of Jesus, her Savior, would be some way discernibly for her. No, she doesn't understand substitutionary atonement like we understand it. But in some small way, she's beginning to understand that Jesus would spend his life for her and that his death would be connected to her. And so Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. See, see, Mary is an example for us of the transforming effect that the gospel is to have on us. She's an example to the church throughout the ages. And we are to, friends, at this point, evaluate ourselves in light of Mary. In light of her unrestrained devotion to Christ. What can we learn here? I think two things. Two things at least come to my mind here. First, first, learn this. Unrestrained devotion for the Savior is evidence of a new heart. Unrestrained devotion for the Savior is evidence of a new heart. This is conversion. See, what conver- this is what conversion produces. This is what we become. You see, because where there is a profession of faith in the Savior Without affection for the Savior, something is really wrong. Let me say that again. Where there is profession of faith in the Savior without affection for the Savior, something is wrong. The genuineness of that profession should be examined. Now, I want to be really careful here because my intention is not to unsettle anyone who has been genuinely converted. Actually, it's just the opposite. I want all who are here who are genuinely converted to draw fresh assurance from this passage, because in your heart this morning, if there is genuine affection for the Savior, that's evidenced by obedience to the Savior, well then you should receive fresh assurance from this passage, from the Savior, that you have been indeed transformed by the gospel. See, and such affection is evident in this body. I couldn't help but think while we were singing... The praises that we're feeling. When we sing, we are singing praises to the Savior because we have affection for the Savior. We have been transformed. We are a body who has been changed by the gospel. And we need to act like that. And when we come together, we need to celebrate the fact that we have been transformed by the gospel. Because it has affected us. We are new people and I can discern that, and, and I say that for your encouragement, pastorally. This is a congregation of, of believers who are struggling, yet, yet, people who are being transformed by the gospel, and the effects of that are clear and discernible. 
I can see it. Your pastors can see it. We are pleased and thankful for you. So, but in a room this size, my guess is that there are others of you who have come here this morning with a profession of faith. And that profession has not been examined or evaluated. And I ask you this morning, are there any evidences of obedience to the Savior in your life? See, if not, I want you to be unsettled. In fact, I want you to be so unsettled that you will flee to the cross for mercy. My Christian friend, let us let us examine ourselves. I, I, I ask you, are there any present, not perfect, any present evidences of real affection for the Savior in your life? These are evidences of grace. Evidences of affection which are evidenced by obedience to Him, evidenced by a desire to be with Him, evidenced in a desire to be with His people. And don't miss that last one. See, you can't say that you love the Savior and not like His bride. You can't say that you have a love and affection for the Savior but hate his wife. And what about your lifestyle? What about your lifestyle? What do others say about you? Do they see evidences that the gospel has had a transforming effect on your life? I mean, based on a typical, let's just take a slice of your life, a typical week, what would people say you are most passionate about and excited by and devoted to? Please don't misunderstand me here. It's not perfect evidences that Christ is after, but present evidences, no matter how immature those evidences may be of your affection for the Savior. You say, Jonathan, I am struggling to be affectionate towards the Savior. Well, this is a great day to come and have an encounter with Jesus to be affected freshly by your Savior so that you leave here with new affection for your Savior. See, the problem is we live in a church culture that encourages false assurance of salvation. You know this. People are encouraged to think that they're saved, though they have no evidence to support that claim. Don English puts it this way. He says, and I read, In the evangelical church in the United States, it is quite common for someone to remain in a lifestyle indistinguishable from that of an unconverted, unregenerate individual, but with the confidence that they possess eternal salvation. How sad. How sad is that? Therefore, I I, I say this to us this morning. If you are unresponsive in worship, if you are unaffected by truth, if you are uninterested in preaching, if you are uninvolved in the local church, if you are unaware of your sin, then it would appear that you are also unlike Mary and unconverted. You see, Mary is a living illustration for us. So that's the first thing. Unrestrained devotion is evidence of conversion. Second, unrestrained devotion for the Savior is to be the increasing experience of the believer. The the key word here is increasing. That means rather than a declining devotion, affection, love, and worship for the Savior, we are progressing in affection, love, and worship of the Savior. 
Because that's what the gospel does. It doesn't just change us once. It continues to change us throughout our Christian life. It has this transforming effect on us. Because when one has been transformed through Christ, extravagant love, devotion, and worship cannot be hidden. It cannot. Which is why we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves so that we can be transformed afresh by this gospel. Is it, is it transforming you this morning? Is it transforming you? How is it transforming you increasingly? Does your life appear to be more devoted to Jesus now than it was this year, this time last year? Just do a yearly survey. Are you more kingdom-oriented than this time last year? Are you less money-conscious? Are you less worldly-minded? Are you more prayerful? Are you increasingly aware of how little time you have left? Are you devoting yourself to God? Are you pouring out your life for Christ like Mary's oil on Jesus' head? This costly sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Your death to self is reasonable. That's not excessive. That's just reasonable. I mean, how radical is Jesus? Jesus is saying, look, you need to die to yourself to follow me in discipleship, and that's just reasonable. <laughs> but I love, I love Christ, because there's nothing better than death to self. See, I am my biggest problem. My flesh is my greatest problem. We, we have to be transformed by the gospel. Here's a question. <clears throat> See, here's the problem. These guys think that Mary is too excessive. She's too religious. This is excessive. <clears throat> Does your commitment to Christ appear to be excessive? Or even wasteful? Here's a question. Does anyone think you're extreme? Does anyone take notice of your devotion and say, that's too excessive? See, the world has never had a problem with Christianity practiced in moderation. The world has no problem with Christians gaining wealth, power, or even influence. No, the world has a problem when Christians live like they're supposed to. See, if we're living the Christian life like we're supposed to, the world will despise that. Just read Hebrews 11 through 13 for proof for that. Have you ever wondered why the early church appears to be so... I was, I was groping for a word this, this, this week, and I thought, here's the word. Have you ever seen, <clears throat> wondered why the early church appears to be so unrestrained? Unrestrained in their love, affection, and devotion to Christ, even unto death. Read the martyrdom of Polycarp. Read the early church. Read what the early church went through. And I think part of the reason why is because unrestrained Christianity looks unrestrained because our Christianity is not unrestrained. Could it be that for us, our love and devotion for the Savior is in fact not only increasing, in fact it's quite restrained. Our Christianity is restrained. We are practicing a, a, a modified, sort of careful Christianity. It's restrained. Could it be that this is the problem? See, we're happy with Christianity in moderation. Could it be that for many of us, our love and devotion for the Savior is in fact not only increasing, it is 
indeed restrained. Could it be that we're transformed not by the gospel finally, but we're being transformed by the culture so that we're experiencing a result, the restraining effects from this culture on us? I I don't need to remind us how dangerous it is to live in America. It's dangerous. This place is dangerous. And I don't need to remind us of that because you know that. But I ask us this question this morning that, that we need to come to grips with the fact that we're here this morning because a whole lot of people in front of us suffered for Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Don't forget church history. What enabled them to suffer for Christ is the fact that Christ was their better possession. See, Christ was for them the greatest. Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's their greatest possession. So what is my prayer for us? Here's my desire. My desire for us as a church is that our lives will have um, a radical, what shall we say, taste. Taste. Uh, A radical taste. A risk-taking scent. An edgy, counter-cultural, serious flavor so that it makes the American dream start to feel really really uncomfortable. And I'm preaching this to myself because we need this. That's safe. I'm talking about a strange mixture of tenderness and toughness that keeps worldliness off balance. It's just, it's tender, but it's tough. It's tough, but it's tender. I'm talking about a pervasive call to something more, something unsafe, but something that's very wonderful, a life that's actually salty, that actually starts to feel like New Testament Christianity. And I want to get there, and I, I need you to help me, and, and we need to help you. We need to help each other. But, friends, here's the, here's, the, here's the point. We won't get there unless, like Mary, we consider Jesus to be our better possession. Unless we are unrestrained in our devotion to Christ precisely because He is our highest possession. Otherwise, what is Jesus to you? If He's not your highest possession, then what is your profession of faith in Jesus? It's, maybe He's something else. Is He just a convenience? A means to something else? You know... Let's bring the kids to church because Jesus provides a safe environment for the kids. Jesus is a convenience. This is just the Christian version of the American dream. Nice Christian family, nice house, nice dog, and a nice small group Bible study, and that's it. No inconvenience. No risks needed. No suffering necessary. Oh, and please don't talk about missions because it's dangerous, and I don't want my kid to die on the mission field. Let's avoid suffering. You know, and here's, here's a counterintuitive thought. Listen, you can live in a one-room bedroom apartment and drive a beater and work at McDonald's and urge a minimum wage and be totally consumed by the American dream and comfort. This does not have to do with, any, with having a big house and a nice car. You can have a big house and a nice car. That's not the problem. The problem is a spirit. It's a heart. It's a motivation issue. See, trust me, I've been to the third world many times. I've seen it. 
Pastor Keith can testify to this. Convenient Christianity is too easy here. You can have it. You can have convenient Christianity, but the question is this, at what cost? At what cost? You see, because for Judas, Jesus was convenient. Jesus served for Judas a utilitarian purpose. The moral worth of Jesus was determined not by his beauty, but by his utility in providing something else to satisfy his pleasure. Look at verses 10 and 11. Could there have been a more tragic existence? I mean, in contrast to Mary, this story of Judas is all the more jolting. The text says, verse 10, then Judas. Then Judas. It's setting up like this contrast. First Mary, then Judas. First Mary, then Judas. It's almost like a show and tell. Okay, here's Mary. Here's her show and tell of anointing Jesus and her great demonstration of devotion and love for Christ. And here's, all right, here's Judas. Here's his show and tell. Actually, it's more of a hide and conceal. He's faking it. He's faked it his whole life. He's a fake. But it's not hidden from the Savior. Jesus knew Psalm 41. Jesus knew that Psalm 41 said, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knew the real significance of Psalm 55.20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And so it begins in verse 10 says, then Judas Iscariot, who, who was, who was, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity. He sought an opportunity to betray him. See, the real tragedy here is that Judas was not always this way. He was an insider. He was one of the twelve. He was an apostle. He had been given miraculous gifts. He was a preacher of the gospel. He's a, here's a man who had gone out to the surrounding villages and preached the message of the kingdom. He's a guy who's casting out demons. Such a promising beginning. In fact, he was a trusted friend. He was a confidant of Jesus. And it's been said that next to Peter, James, and John, Judas might have been the closest to Jesus. The early church writers have said that. Here he is. He, he's walking around and he was put in charge as the treasurer. He had a good reputation at first and he had that money bag. You, you read about the money bag in John chapter 12 that Judas carried around. He had a money bag and the widows would put their widow's might into this bag. And, and he was trusted with this. Why? Because he had a financial head on his shoulders and it was wise for Jesus to give that to Judas because Judas was the guy who understood finances and money. And he had a good reputation. See, he, he looked like the right man for the right job. None of his disciples suspected hypocrisy. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 18, one of you will betray me, no one said, Lord, is it Judas? No. They said, Lord, is it I? Nobody suspected this of Judas. Slowly his life changes, yes, but nobody initially expected this of Judas. So here's the question for us this morning. How do we avoid becoming like Judas? Let me say two things. First, notice the subtle and self-deceptive nature of Judas's betrayal. This does not happen suddenly. This does not happen overnight. It sneaks up on him. Just look at the whole Gospel of Mark. Where do you see Judas doing anything that remotely resembles 
betraying the Savior as a person. Where, where do you see this? You won't find it. What happens is it's been progressing slowly but surely. His heart grows more and more cold. Judas had a conscience. We, we know he had a conscience, but the problem is it grew harder and harder and harder over time. His conscience did not rule over his behavior. In fact, he started violating his conscience over and over again, and his conscience became hard. His flesh began to exercise dominance over that inner voice. See, he earned his money honestly, and to be fair, probably Judas liked to earn his money honestly. But for some reason, if a need came up, he was willing to kind of, well, let's just kind of dip into the funds a little bit. You know, just take a little bit here, take a little bit there, and slowly, slowly start taking a little bit more. And let me speak into your life. Every sin left unchecked, unrepented of, will lead to more. It will lead to more. Every day you go in unrepentant sin, another plank is kicked out of the bridge on the way back to God. You get further from God. Another plank kicked out harder to get back to God. And slowly but surely the conscience is hardened and you wake up and you find yourself in a place you never thought you would be. And Tim Hocus said it well. He said, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you planned to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That's so true. That is so true. But hear this. At the root of your sin and my sin is a self-absorption. It's a selfishness that just absolutely devastates and destroys people around you. Listen, if, if you are rebelling against God significantly in your heart, it is hurting your family. It is hurting your family. It's hurting your friends. It is hurting the people around you. And, and it's just so, it's so selfish. So selfish. A son or daughter rebels against God. The parents lie awake weeping and praying while a son or daughter sleeps soundly in the next room, oblivious to the hearts that they are breaking. A wife lies in bed, anguishes over a marriage that is tearing apart at the seams, and listens to the deep breathing of her soundly sleeping husband, who is so unplugged in his rebellion against God. May God help us. Secondly, notice the intentionality of Judas's betrayal. See, while his betrayal is subtle and progresses slowly, at some point he actually pro actively starts betraying the Savior. See, what had largely been a passive hardening of his conscience with only some outward manifestations had now become full-grown. You see, a little money for Judas was a great thing to him. See, till now he had been poor. And the Apostle John makes clear the fact that this man ended up becoming, at the end of his life, a thief. That's what John makes really clear. John tells us that after Mary anoints Jesus with the expensive oil, that Judas was the one that complained and said the money should be given to the poor. That's what John says. He, he was there. He knows. He says that Judas complains and the money could have gone to the poor. Then John comments on this in John chapter 12, verse 6, and he says this. Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge over the money bag... He used to help himself to what was put into it. 
That's incredible. That's, in, that's incredible. He used to help himself to the money bag. It's almost incredible unless, unless we didn't have a news outlet where we hear of these charlatans and these preachers all over the, the world in the United States who are stealing money from the church and from the kingdom of God. There's a new one, a pastor in Long Island. of which were spent on his Botox injections. Because he was self-absorbed with the way he looked. $22,000 spent flying his family to the Bahamas in the name of evangelism. That's pitiful. And some people, here's the problem, is that some people think then, okay, well, if this is Judas, Judas, see, Judas is not new. This is going on. But some people think, well, if Judas is just so money-hungry, then that's his main problem. He's just a money-hungry guy. He's full of greed. And that's true, but it's not the whole story. See, I think what we miss is the fact that Judas is not only money-hungry, but he's become wildly ambitious in a worldly sense. Ambition can be a good thing. It can also be a terribly destructive thing. See, his worldly aspirations had turned his affections from everything spiritual to anything and everything material. He started to love money, love power, love prestige. See, he joined Christ with the assumption that soon Jesus would be proclaimed king of the Jews. In other words, here's Judas in this unique position to build a convenient relationship with Jesus Christ. A utilitarian relationship where Jesus became nothing more than a tool or a lackey in the hands of Judas to get what his flesh so desperately wanted. See, because being close to the king meant that for Judas, he would probably secure a position in that kingdom of high ranking. And so his flesh begins to burn. It begins to yearn for that. It really really sheds new light on the situation where James and John... In chapter 10, remember when they come to Jesus and they say, uh, Teacher, <clears throat> we would like for you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus says, What would you like me to do for you? Uh, teacher, um, <clears throat> see, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. These guys don't have a clue what's going on. And Jesus tells them that. See, these guys are clueless about the kingdom. And the text says when, they, when the ten heard this, they became angry. Now, I wonder if Judas was the angriest of all. And I wonder if at that moment Judas said, okay, I'm going to get a leg up on these other guys, and I'm going to build a nice, respectable relationship with the boss to just kind of conveniently jockey for position so that when Jesus is anointed king of the Jews, I'm in. I got that position. I'm that right-hand guy. Jesus is going to come after me. I'm going to be right beside him. I'm going to have that position. Have you ever felt this temptation to do that with your boss? Don't do it. It will ruin you. Men who are working for a boss, don't do it. Women who are working for a boss, don't do it. Favors in the workplace, trying to promote yourself. Let God promote you. God is your promoter through Christ. 
This ruins Judas. See, because when it became clear that Jesus was not going to be this kind of king, this political grand ruler of an earthly empire, he started to feel like this was some sick joke. Judas is like, this is some sick joke. All of a sudden, I thought I was going to be like this guy in the kingdom, and this whole kingdom thing's not happening. In fact, you're going to go and die? What is this? Some sick joke? And all of his dreams were being shattered. And, and, and so for Judas, it's either fish or cut bait. So he thinks if I fish, look, I'm going nowhere. And if I cut bait, I can devise a way at least to get some money out of this thing. So then Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest in order to betray them to him. To betray him to them. So what happens is, you see the intentionality here. In order that, verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Friends, worldly ambition will ruin you. This, this is not your home. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a rich man, for, sorry, for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Worldly ambition will lead you to do the most perverse things you can ever imagine. Worldly ambition will lead us, it will cause us, it will to to use anybody and everybody to advance our fleshly desires. You see, here's Mary. For Mary, Jesus equals beauty. For Judas, Jesus equals utility. What's your relationship with Jesus? What's your relationship with Jesus? Are you using Jesus for something else? Listen carefully. Friends, Jesus will not be used. He will not. Verse 21, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him had that man not been born. You do realize, don't you, that it's possible to betray Jesus? This is not something just unique to Judas. Oh, it'll look and feel different. And your final goal may be different, but in the end, Jesus will be betrayed out of convenience. Friends, we must not be deceived. Jesus will not be mocked. In fact, I urge us to the humility of verse 19. This is what we should do. Here's our approach to the passage. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Could it be me? See, asking that is safe. Assuming that it's not possible is dangerous. That's why I preach this. You say, well, why are you preaching so hard? I mean, it's just Judas, and he's just, it's just such a, you know, and it, Because, friends, here's the thing. We could be so easily duped. There's nothing more urgent than us coming to in front of this text and saying, I think we're saved. I think we love Christ. I see affection for Jesus. But could there be, could it be that we need to ask the question, is it I? Oh, the humility of that. The humility just to say, Lord, it's possible. I could be be a preacher and miss it. That's why Paul says, lest I be disqualified. I, I examine myself, lest I too be disqualified. It's possible. So let me ask you this question. Do we have anyone here from the Judas party this morning? Is anyone using Jesus for something else? See, I urge, I urge you to repent of that. Here's what's so sad. Judas had plenty of opportunity to repent. Judas sold his master, and what did his master do? The night before, he washed Judas' feet. Such love, 
such closeness. He washed Judas' feet. There's Jesus. He takes a towel. He kneels down and he begins to wash the feet of, G- of Jesus. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples when Peter said, Peter went, comes up to him and he says, Lord, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you won't be clean and you'll have no share with me in the kingdom. Peter says, well, then by all means, wash everything, head and toe. Wash my whole body. And then listen, Jesus washes his feet. And you know what he does? Jesus looks at the room and he says, you are clean but not all of you. And he looks at Judas with a tear running down his cheek. With a tearful eye. Because he knew that Judas would betray him. It's right there in John chapter 13. What could have been clearer? Judas should have repented then and there. Judas should have said, God, uh, please show me mercy. In God's mercy... God provided Judas with this opportunity. But listen to this. He had still another opportunity. Jesus is at the Last Supper and he says, I tell you truly, one of you will betray me. And some of them ask, is it I? Is it I? And right then and there, Judas should have said, it is me. It is me. I have done it. I am the betrayer of you, Jesus. I, I ask you to forgive me. I'm a rotten man. Please forgive me, Jesus. He had an opportunity. You know what? He had even another opportunity. Because in the garden, when he goes to actually betray Jesus, he could have stopped and said, Jesus, I'm in the middle of the act right now of betraying you, and I stop. I'm, I, I, Lord, I, I suffer the consequences of this, but please forgive me. I stop right now. I'm a rotten man. I'm trying to betray you right now. It's wrong. I confess it. It's terrible. He could have done it. You think God would have been merciful to him? Do you think Jesus would have been merciful? Yes, he would have. If he would get down on his knees and repent, he would be merciful. And some of you say, well, I've gone so far in, my, in, in sin. I've gone off so off course. There's no way that God can be merciful. If you are breathing right now, if you are listening to my voice, there is mercy for you. You go to Jesus. You will receive mercy from him right now. He is happy to embrace you, to, to bring you to himself right now, savingly by faith. Come to Jesus. He had opportunity. What opportunities for repentance? Here's the sad thing, friends. He squandered them all. Oh, don't squander opportunities. Here's one right now. Please don't squander it. Please understand how sin works. See, what starts out as a convenient relationship with Jesus becomes less and less enticing. Your cavalier attitude to sin causes you to slowly but surely walk further and further away from your profession. Initially, your refusal to surrender your worldly ambitions to the Lordship of Christ is subtle and it's hardly recognizable. And for some of you this morning, it might be hardly recognizable that you're refusing the Lordship of Jesus, but you are. And listen, listen to me. Your worldly ambitions left unchecked, left unrepented of, will grow and grow and grow until it becomes a monster and absolutely devours you. Sin will dominate. Well, we're all, friends, in a heap of trouble unless God is merciful to us. And so I invite you, in closing, to receive Jesus' sacrifice. It's there in verse 22 through 25. This is my conclusion. My third point is my conclusion. Because I think that is the conclusion of the text. It's not its own point. It's the conclusion. Why? Why did Jesus die? See, you have to step back for a moment and realize that there are two plots taking place. On the one hand, there's this plot of Judas 
and the religious leaders to remove Jesus, who is a threat to their power. Judas finds out that I'm not going to have a place in this kingdom anymore, so let's remove Jesus, and I can at least get some bank out of this thing. And, and the Pharisees and religious leaders hate Jesus because he's causing all these problems, so let's remove him. In other words, that's plot number one. And at the same time, there's another plot taking place, and this was a plan aimed at the salvation of many through the death of one. So one was a plan for political assassination. The other was a plan of a man willing to lay down his own life. And these plans come together in the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is using this Last Supper, this Passover, to teach his disciples that he is a lamb himself. Only he is one without blemish. Here they are at the Passover, and they're celebrating this, and they, and they slaughter a lamb. And you see that Jesus is saying himself that he is that lamb. See, if Jesus were following the traditional Passover liturgy, after the meal, this is what he would have said around that table. This is what he would have said in Aramaic. I'll give you the English translation. Jesus would have said, here's the bread. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover. That's what Jesus would have said. But instead of repeating the traditional words, we read that Jesus says this, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He breaks the bread. He breaks the bread symbolizing his body is broken for you. And with these words, Jesus completely redefines the Jewish Passover. In Luke 22, 19 and 20, Luke tells us that Jesus said, This is my body which is given for you. For you. For you. This cup is poured out for you. It's for us. This is for us. For us. Jesus is saying His death on the cross is for you. Is he your Savior? Is he your Passover lamb? I feel like Mary for a second. I hope you do too. As we behold the Lamb of God. Let's anoint him. Let's anoint him. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't Jesus beautiful? He is presenting himself as the final lamb to be slain. After his sacrifice, it will become crystal clear why it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because as the final Lamb of God, Jesus is saying that He will offer for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And then... Sit down at the right hand of God. And I close with three words. He sat down. Praise God. Let's pray. Lamb of God, we worship you. We worship you. We behold your beauty. 
Psalm 24, Psalm 27, 4. <clears throat> One thing I, I ask and I desire of the Lord, this I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that I, that I may behold His beauty and meditate in His temple. Lord, we want to behold the beauty of You. I pray, Father, I pray that You would use this sermon to cause us this week, to cause us this day to behold the beauty of who You are as the final Lamb of God that was slain. Receive glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.